to everyone out there listening. Welcome back to Peds Ortho and to everyone here. Thank you so much for joining us. We're doing our first live event of the podcast. Uh, we've got four moderators here and then also four panelists who you'll meet in a second. We are in Dallas for the annual meeting, sort of tucked away in a room down the hall from the uh, main event. And uh, let's run through the moderators. My name is Carter Clement. I work at Children's Hospital in beautiful uptown New Orleans. And I'm here with Craig Lauer, who really gets all the credit for today. He's from Vanderbilt, and he really put this event together. Uh, I've also got Nick Fletcher here. He is usually the host of Interview with a PD Pod, and joining us today for this episode of Peds Ortho um, as our, our elder moderator to bring some wisdom to the group. Great but he's still you. sitting over here at the kids' table with the moderators. And uh, last but not least, Josh Holt from Iowa. Um, and uh, Josh, over to you. Yeah, this is real fun to have this new and different setting. So we appreciate the guests joining us in their small break between other meetings. That we, we do appreciate your time and energy to join us here. And I'd like to quickly introduce you all. None of you actually need any introduction, but I'll quickly do that. So we have with us Colin May, who is joining us from Boston Children's Hospital, where he primarily focuses on pediatric trauma and lower extremity. We have Salil Upasani, who is the director of the International... Center for Pediatric and Adolescent Hip at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. We have Colleen Sabatini, who's joining us from ortho, uh, UCSF Children's Hospital in Oakland, where she is the director and chief of orthopedics. And we have uh, Dr. John Scheneker, who's joining us from Vanderbilt University, where he is associate professor in orthopedics, pharmacology, pathology, and pediatrics, and chair in orthopedic trauma and hip surgery. So it's a real honor to read off um, the four guests that we have with us today to have a hopefully lively and educational interaction. All right, this is Craig. Um, so thanks to all our uh, guests for being here. We're going to get going with the main event. So, um, you know, we have an opportunity. You guys are going to be presenting these abstracts in a couple hours in the general trauma sessions. Um, but we have an opportunity here to have maybe more back and forth discussion about it. So we're going to take that opportunity. I'm going to, uh, we're going to sequentially put up a case or an x-ray. The audience here can kind of see that. And we're going to ask a question of um, how you will uh, treat that condition. We'll end up going through uh, sequentially the, for the listeners. They're going to write down their answers so they cannot change them. And they're going to commit to an answer. And we're going to hear all their responses. We'll then hear from the author of the relevant abstract, and he'll see he or she will see if they can convince the other presenters to change their uh, their algorithms. Um, and we'll try and uh, make that visual uh, the visual experience uh, transfer to an audio as best we can. Um, so, without further ado, we're going to get started with the first case. All right, panelists. So, this right here is a six-year-old female. She fell from the monkey bars. She has, uh, for the listeners, it's a type 3 supracondylar fracture, uh, posterior and medial displacement of the distal fragment. And um, she also has a PIN palsy clinically. So my question for you guys, and we're going to ask a Pictionary type response to this, maybe draw your best intact distal humerus, you know, draw a fracture line across that supracondylar area, and then draw, the question is, what is your standard pin fixation construct or algorithm for this type fracture. We're going to do 10 seconds. Nick, you've rehearsed the Jeopardy. Well, I was going to ask if we give extra points for artistic 
talent. Because I think Colleen is coming in no. a strong number one so right terrible. now. Terrible! Yeah. I am the worst drawer in the world. We can world. put uh, we'll we can put all the images also online, right, Carter? Yeah, these all can all be in the show notes. Yeah. That's no problem. <laughs> um, all right. Looks like uh, we're still we're still working a little bit. Um, we're gonna yeah, go with ready to go. Uh, all right, pins down. <laughs> all right, great. All right, we're gonna start with uh, Dr. Upasani. Could you reveal your construct and all briefly right. explain your algorithm? So this is my construct. So this patient has a PIN palsy, so it's uh, important to take him to the operating room urgently. And this patient would get a closed reduction with a percutaneous pinning. And I prefer to start with three lateral pins, catching the capitellum, um, getting bicortical purchase, and good spread across the fracture site. <clears throat> Can you show the audience, please? And then uh, anyone, Here who, is my... anyone who agrees and loves that, just raise your hand if that's how you would do it. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with that. Maybe. All right. All right. I, Majority. I, like, I noticed you've drawn a, a perfectly anatomic reduction. Well, I, I think, think that's realistic for you, though. Dr. Sabatini? Pretty much. Pretty much. My drawing is um, a little bit more elementary uh, and, and opposite. That's my lecranon fossa. That's my um, capitalum right there. I, too, would do three lateral wires in a, uh, in a divergent fashion, but then I always stress in the OR. So I drew my pins, and then I stress, and then I do something if I need to. How do you do your stress? Not so I, briefly. I do... Um, oh, sorry. I do... Uh, um, actually, probably not great from a... Um, radiation perspective, but I do a live stress varus valgus and then uh, flexion extension on the lateral view and make sure that there's no motion. And when I'm doing my varus valgus, there's obviously a little bit of rotation to that as well. Perfect. Dr. May. Yeah, so like the other panelists, I also would do three lateral pins. Um, so that's my construct. Um, I do do live fluoro uh, check of stability also. Um, Audience, raise of hands into uh, agreeing with this one. It sounds like these are all uh, similar variations. All right, good. The whole 50-person audience is raising their hand. All right, Dr. Schenker, what is your you, com you completely baited me. I mean, that just this is ridiculous. Throwing up a 3A on there for this one is hysterical. So just for fun to start off, uh, I've got here a uh, single pin on a three. Single pin on a three A is Nate is absolutely loving this. Single pin, okay. Yeah, and, and the main reason that I say that is, is we've been, we actually have been doing that for the three A's. So on the three A's, the main thing to understand about this is this is a rotational injury in which the periosteal sleeve on the medial side is going to be completely intact and is going to hold that medial side in varus valgus rotation, etc. The only place your periosteum is really torn on this is going to be out lateral and anterior, which is why you have the radial nerve palsy. And Five so seconds, these please. are great <laughs> for lateral pin only. Um, because when you go to do this, you want to test it on an internal rotational stress test to see if the medial column will rotate off. And if it doesn't rotate off, you're done. And so you'll find on a lot of these that when you get it reduced really well, a single pin going across the olecranon fossa, not going up the lateral column, is usually more than sufficient to replace the lateral periosteum and the anterior periosteum on this. So you have pin fixation constructs that are just single pin? Uh, like 20 of them. Um, if the it was not stable, then you just ab start adding more pins. But the whole entire point of the internal rotational stress test that I think is fabulous is it gives you an objective reason as to knowing when you're done. And that's one of the things a lot of people jump to do three pins on this. And we know that the higher risk of infection, 
of uh, iatrogenic injury come along with how many pins, and we need to have an objective way to understand when are we done in the operating room with these injuries. So, so let me describe your abstract that you're going to present in more detail later. So in this abstract, the authors uh, report on uh, 1,456 displaced supracondylar humerus fractures that underwent pinning over a 10-year period. At one point, the internal rotation stress test, which is the focus of that abstract and what you just described, uh, became standard practice, and you guys were able to compare the outcomes in the era of pre-IRST versus doing it standard IRST. And uh, you found that significant decreases of cases having loss of fixation, you went from 10 to 1, as well as reoperation, 27 cases down to 1. Um, and uh, so obviously these are statistically significant improvements in clinical care. So my question for you is, can you briefly explain your pin construct and fixation algorithm to the group? Uh, more specifically, since you did that somewhat, can you explain yeah. how you do this internal rotation stress test? Yeah, so, you know, the main thing is understanding where the periosteum's intact and torn. So that's why I said you threw a curveball when you started off by giving a 3A with the posterior medial because so much of internal rotational stress and our loss of fixation comes from a 3B, which is a posterior lateral or a flexion type in which the medial periosteum is torn. And so the controversy exists as to how do you stabilize that medial column and either with three pins trying to capture it or a medial-based pin, which some people are concerned about iatrogenic injury to the ulnar nerve, which we address in a different uh, abstract here. And so once you start pinning, the goal is, is to make sure that you maintain that reduction with stability by internally rotating to stress that in the medial column and to look visually under fluoro if it rotates off. If it rotates off, you change your approach and either have a more valgus pin so it grabs it more, or like what we typically do is just go over and do a medial pin. And so again, it's the, the internal rotational stress test is good for all the type three supracondylars and flexion type, but the ones that you really need it on are the three uh, Bs, the posterior lateral and the flexion type, because that's where that periosteum around that medial side is usually torn. And so again, thanks for the curveball of starting off by a posterior medial. Well, then let me, um, for the rest of our panels, we have about a minute left for this one. So does anyone want to jump in and say, uh, first of all, for this fracture type, did Dr. Schinninger convince any of you to do single pin fixation? Uh, that, the, the interrotational stress <laughs> test is okay. what I'm saying. So let's go with, let's say the medial periosteum was torn and it was a uh, that sort of fracture pattern. Um, would anyone be inclined, based off what you just heard, to do lateral-based pins and then an internal rotation stress test. Um, any comments? We won't have time to go down the line. I mean, I think that's kind of what most of us do anyway, right? So if it had been a 3B, we would do the reduction we put in our pins um, and then do the stress. We just might do it slightly different. I would love to see exactly what Dr. Schenecker is doing because it sounds like it's probably consistent with some of the, what the rest of us do. We just don't have it that have that name. Um, and then obviously, if with our current fixation, we stress it and it opens up, then we would put that medial wire in. Perfect. Um, Good. We'll actually stop that one under time. And I think we'll get a video of that internal rotation stress test in the session later today. Yeah. All right. On to Nick Fletcher for the next abstract. Excellent. Good conversation. So uh, we're going to move on to an abstract that Dr. Sabatini has, uh, uh, is going to be presenting today. Uh, but before that, we're going to start with our case, which is a Clavicle fracture. So Dr. Sabatini's uh, uh, abstract is on uh, the need for fixation of clavicle fractures. And so 
we are presenting here a uh, completely displaced uh, skeletally mature patient's uh, clavicle with a Z fragment or a uh, sort of a kickstand fragment um, with about, we're going to call it two centimeters of shortening. So with our, uh, you probably don't necessarily have to draw it uh, completely anatomically correct, but what is your treatment uh, algorithm here, whether it be operative or non-operative? And we'll give you a couple seconds to write that down. All right, Colin underlined it at the end, so it's got to be intact and, and, and locked in. We're going to start there. We're going to go the opposite direction. So, Dr. May, can you give us a, uh, a, an overview of what your approach would be here? Yeah, uh, <clears throat> well, uh, I think uh, our uh, institution is a little biased towards um, treating these more non-operatively. Um, one of the co-authors in Dr. Sabatini's uh, article um, uh, ben Hayworth is an advocate of non-operative um, treatment of most adolescent clavicles, and I think we sort of have uh, bent to that. So my uh, treatment of choice here would be non-operative treatment. Perfect. In Nashville, are they doing anything different? Unless it's open tenting, mm -hmm. supraclavicular nerve, something like that out, then it's uh, non-op. And cross-country? I have drawn non-operative <laughs> healing it's of beautiful. a clavicle fracture. So my only thing, I'd prefer to treat it in a figure of eight brace, I think... Uh, patients seem to do a little bit better with that pressure sitting on the on the clavicle instead of a sling, but non-operative for sure. Great. So, uh, and Dr. Sabatini, uh, Dr. Sabatini. <laughs> if I could draw a sling, I would have drawn a sling, but. I mean, you probably could. <laughs> probably Expectedly could through non-ops. So we have four non-ops. Um, and so the, the big overview of the uh, article, which uh, I'm going to is uh, operative versus non-operative treatment of Z-type comminuted clavicle fractures in adolescents, substratified cohort analysis. And this was a multi-center analysis out of uh, uh, the, a, a large study group that looked at um, uh, about 80 clavicle fractures, evenly split between operative and non-operative. And the sort of the bottom line take home was that there was no benefit really in any, at any level radiographically, clinically, or complications wise of non-operative uh, outcomes. And so the question that I would pose to you and then also to the group, uh, Colleen, is what are, uh, other than open, um, what are the true indications in 2021 for, uh, you know, are, are there certain athletes, are there certain activities that might uh, warrant it? Yeah, I think that um, sort of in my hands and, and that of the people who have, have sort of looked at this literature um, is really that the true indication is skin being threatened. So whether that be an actual open fracture, which is incredibly rare, um, or puckering. And I only add that because I actually, the one clavicle I've operated on this last year was a horribly puckered um, clavicle fracture, which I was actually very surprised by. And then as Dr. Scheneker said, if, you know, if there's like some sort of incredibly rare nerve injury, then that might um, be an indication as well. But otherwise, from what the literature tells us in adolescence, there is not an indication for, for surgical treatment. We do not have studies that tell us reliably if it's a faster return to sport or anything like that. And so, um, yeah, based on the information that we have, there is not a benefit to surgery. Um, and then it becomes just a conversation with the family about what their preferences are. But we cannot tell them that there's a benefit to doing surgery based on the literature that we have. And do you think, and obviously, Colin, I'd love to hear your uh, view as well, because I know you've been involved with this, um, or your center's been involved with this project. Is there a ceiling effect with the, with the uh, uh, outcome scores that we're using? Are we just not necessarily looking at the right thing? Colin? Oh, I was like, which yeah. one of us? Because we have similar names, so. Yeah, yeah sorry, sorry. <laughs> Colin, not Colleen. Yeah, I think that's always a concern. I'm um, not 
knowing exactly what uh, was reported on in this particular abstract as far as outcome measures. Um, I won't comment on the specifics, but I do think that's a concern. I also um, was going to throw back a question to Colleen, actually, which is, um, you know, you mentioned taking into account patient preference. So if they say, you know, I'm worried about strength or I hate the bump, are you okay to operate on that or are you going to tell them go somewhere else or what do you do? Um, yeah, so I, th I think that all we can tell them is that the literature tells us that there is no outcome difference between these two um, these two options. And some people, unfortunately, feel very strongly that surgery is the way to go. Uh, maybe they've seen somebody else who gave them that opinion, but they you know, sent them to the children's hospital for surgery, and it's very hard to convince them otherwise. I would not. I mean, there's plenty of other people in the world who would operate on them. It's not hard to find somebody who will just go down, down the street to the sports medicine guy who will more than happily operate on the clavicle. Um, but no, so I, again, my indication is, is what, I've, um, what I've explained. Uh, I, and I can't look somebody in the eye and tell them that the risk, you know, the surgical risk to their child is worth it um, when there is not a, an outcome difference. And this study does actually, just answering the question that you asked about ceiling effects, we actually do take into, into, into account in the analysis the ceiling effects. So we actually, it's like a sort of did like a proprietary thing within the whole fact study group of how we look and control for floor and ceiling effects in those outcomes. And so that is taken into consideration. The numbers then become very low for those who fall out of um, sort of being near the floor or the ceiling, uh, but then we analyze that subgroup to try to account for that so that we're not missing um, differences because there's, there's um, such a floor and ceiling effect in the adolescent population for those outcome scores. Gotcha. So, uh, Salil, you have a comment? Yeah, would you mind if I just ask a quick question? So for these patients, were they randomized into getting surgery or not surgery, or was it based on patient preference? And it seems from your nodding that it was based on surgeon preference. Yeah. Um, and so was there any way to see a difference between these patient groups? Because it could be that somehow they're different and you're getting them to the same outcome. Yep, so the overall facts study group is, um, it's a level two prospective observational cohort study. It is not a randomized study because we didn't feel at the beginning of all of this that we had equipoise to be able to do a true randomized study. And the study group is, you know, maybe like I think 12 of us or so, but there's actually 68 treating providers within this cohort of patients. Um, and so of those 68 providers, the decision was, you know, of whether to operate or not was shared decision making between that particular clinician and their patient. And so we did not tell them how they had to treat their patient. They treated them either operatively or non-operatively, and then we followed appropriately from that. Um, and then we did do, you know, comparison, obviously, between those who were treated surgically and those who weren't. Um, and in this particular study, there was no difference on age. There was no difference um, in, in hand um, dominance, sports participation. The only difference was fracture shortening. And the operative group did have a slightly um, larger amount of fracture shortening, but then that was controlled for in the, in the regression analysis and, again, found to have no difference in outcome. Um, so, yeah. Well, this is a great discussion. I'm going to hand it over to Carter uh, for a discussion of Dr. Uposany's. Perfect. And I will steal the mic from Dr. Carter. <laughs> and we will stick with Dr. Uposany's study, though. So um, next we'll go to uh, another abstract in the hip and infection um, symposium. And with Dr. Uposany and the study with the cortices group looking at operative or non-operative management for osteomyelitis without associated subperiosteal abscess or septic arthritis. So here's your scenario. This is an eight-year-old. Uh, 
presents to the emergency department with five days of progressive pain and limp to non-weight bearing on the extremity. And your first response is, are you going to take this patient to the operating room to wash this out, yes or no? Subcategory of that is, if you could ask for two additional variables, what two variables would you want to know? Whether it's a test, whether it's a imaging, whether it's a patient factor, two things you'd want to know that may change that. But yes or no, OR or not. And Josh, just to clarify, no pictures. No pictures are needed. No, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, was enjoying it. Yeah. I love drawing pictures. Yeah, okay. yeah you oh, can still draw it. So Leo yeah. drew a picture, just so that we're aware. <laughs> that will go on the show notes, yes? Um, can I also clarify, if you had an axial slice, you would not see a subparaxial There is no abscess. abscess. No, so it's right, just no the bony findings there you see no there. There is no abscess. And no. Is, that, is that, if we don't have diffusion sequences, is that just edema, or is that like an area of focal necrosis? Ex it's, explain it's, what that is. What it, are we seeing It's edema. There is no necrosis here. Oh, okay. Well, that changes Oh, we're seeing papers go to the so wayside. I think we need another abscess. 10 seconds. It is, there is no subperiosteal <laughs> or intraosseous abscess. Okay, so what we would do now, and then what, were the, what was the If you part? could ask two, if you could get two other variables, whether that's a lab, whether that's a temperature, whether that's a additional data points. You so can have two. Social history. That may or may not change your above answer. like it, Josh. You're really holding their feet to the fire on this one. Yeah, hey. <laughs> They're like, I didn't sign up Vague answers don't help me in Iowa. Vague answers Perfect. don't help me. All right. Who All right. Dr. Sabatini. Non-operative management. Okay. Non-operative management. Is there anything that uh, you wrote a couple things there? Would like any of those things change? I'd like to better understand the time course. Okay. I'd five like days. Five days since the beginning of symptoms? Correct. No symptoms prior to five days? Five days since okay. the beginning of symptoms. And sorry, what was it? do we have the CRP? If, if that's what you want, you can get a CRP. I want a CRP. Yeah, 15.9. Perfect. <laughs> Has that gone up or down recently? They're just in the ER. This is, th this is initial presentation in okay. the ER. And then I, theoretically, I would want to know weight-bearing and antibiotics used thus far. Okay. Okay, Dr. Me, May. This is non-operative. Uh, I'm also going to say non-op at this point, and I was looking for a CRP, and then, um, you know, it's initial presentation, but wanting to know whether they had a positive blood culture or not. Okay. Just trying to get a bug. Good, good. Dr. Schoenecker. Great. I've got maybe. Okay. Perfect. You know, no clear. vagaries Perfectly here whatsoever. Clear, yep. <laughs> and uh, culture and CRP. And your CRP is at milligrams per deciliter, milligrams per liter? Deciliter. For deciliter. Yes. Uh, then definitely watching this thing. Okay. Dr. Posny. All right, perfect. So this is why I was so interested in doing this project, because I trained in San Diego for residency, went to Boston for fellowship, and then came back to San Diego. And very, very different perspectives in the two different programs. And I love it because most of our moderators are San Diego trained, so I'm sure they might have some kind of training bias coming out of San Diego. But so my picture is of a patient that's got two little drill holes into that distal tibia in the metaphysis, just, pro uh, just proximal to the physis. And there's a curette that's going to go into that bone and then get some cultures as well as aspirations from that bone. Whether or not that's right, I think that's still yet to be proven. The two variables, I also had CRP and their ambulatory status. And I think um, that's the big question. Do these um, cultures need to be obtained from the source of the infection 
on these MR images that you're showing us, we clearly see some sort of infection in that metaphysis. Uh, you know, you could take the radiologist's reading to say that there's no abscess in that bone, uh, but in a few cases, we have been kind of misled by that radiology reading, resulting in bad outcomes in patients. So I think that's what's kind of um, set our our treatment process. But perfect. So just to talk about your study shortly, then we'll get back to the the guests and some more discussion. So Dr. Upasani looked at, this is an 18-center, multi-center study, looking at practice variation and management of these. And essentially what they found was that there's three different groups of, of practice. Four of the studies essentially operated every time, 86% of the time they took them to the operating room. Five of the centers had two-thirds of the time they operated, so 60% of the time they operated. And what they found is that they more oftentimes operated if the patient had um, non-weight bearing and if they had disseminated infection. And then the third group was four centers that only operated 30% of the time, but that jumped up to 70% of the time if they had no blood cultures and a CRP above 15. So kind of three different algorithms that three different cohorts of centers use to, to manage these things. Um, so... Dr. Upasana, you went through the algorithm at Rady there a little bit. Is there anything else you want to expand on about the study? Yeah, so I think the strength of it is just to bring 18 centers together and kind of take a peek under the hood to see how we're managing um, what we're hoping is the same type of patient. You know, I think with multi-center studies like this, it's difficult to really make sure that we're classifying the patients perfectly. So that's been a huge debate within Cortices uh, to make sure that we're comparing apples to apples. But Ultimately, it does show that there's a big difference in how we're treating these kids and that a well-done prospective study uh, looking at all the outcome um, factors would, is important to really guide our, our practice and hopefully decrease that variability that we're showing. And I'm sure John has a few things to say about that. So. <laughs> I, well, the main thing I want to speak up about is, is this paper blew me away. Um, you know, I, I, I've congratulated Salil so many times on this, is, is that Often in positive, we do things by surveys, you know, like what we're doing right here. You guys asking us to hold this up. This difference in the way we treat osteomyelitis was completely determined objectively. Is this is off of a database that people put in not knowing why we're doing it. And they went through the numbers and able to find this objective difference that is a completely different way of managing a single disease in or pediatric orthopedics. And this is how it needs to be done. And so from that standpoint, I just want to congratulate the guys at San Diego for going through this and all the Cortices group for putting so much time into this. In the long run, we don't know what's right between those three. And now that we know that there are differences, we can set this up to do this prospectively to actually figure out what actually is right. And uh, so it's been a really fun study to go through on it. Um, so... Anyways, that's the, my take home. It, it really did change the way I thought about the way we need to do these studies. It's hard to put all these databases together if you think about that, knowing that all three, cent, or three groups are treating this differently. Yeah, so my follow-up question is, is, as you mentioned, you know, where we trained and how if we fall into one of those center cohorts that has a big impact. So the four of you, um, who does it because it's the way that they were taught to do it in some part of their training? Raise your hand. Okay, and who does it because of an experience, a two, three experiences they had that turned out badly that swayed them one way or another? Okay, and who does it because they think they know the right way to do it? I think okay. for the audience at home, 
Dr. Schoenecker <laughs> d- was all three. Here. Yeah, correct. <laughs> he knows the right way, and he was trained the right way. <laughs> all right. Perfect. All right, one more case. Uh, before we jump in, I do want to give a shout out to Cortices. I think we figured out that three of these four abstracts were coming out of the Cortices study group. Um, so that is impressive. And I also want to say that I'm very impressed by the artwork coming out of the panelists. And I'm a little disappointed because I thought we were going to be over here heckling you guys. And it's actually been pretty impressive. Um, so case number four, fire it up. All right, so this is... Uh, an intra-op shot of an ankle with a high fibular fracture that's been plated, and now there's an external rotation mortis view uh, stress exam of the ankle, and there's widening of the syndesmosis. Um, for this one, drawing is 100% required. <laughs> so what do you do next intra-op? I'm going to take this break uh, to thank Carter for my wardrobe today since the, lug- or since the airline lost my bag. Um, a hoodie was deemed not appropriate since this is not true podcast and we are live today. So thank you, Carter. And thank you, I- Delta. <laughs> uh, not going to mention the uh, airline American. <laughs> I mean, knowing my, my co-fellows, I always bring extra clothes and several things in case of emergency. Anyone? <laughs> I think there's some shadowing going on over there. <laughs> it's become a competition. <laughs> you don't have to draw all of the threads on the screws. <laughs> oh, we, oh yeah! Know. Know oh man, we're going at the same time. All right, uh, yeah, let's let's start device. down there at that end, Doctor Uposany. Can we? Can we go first? Yes, please. You guys, even, are you going to talk in unison? Even the same device, baby. All right, what well, is this device you speak of? Uh, yes, well, I can't take it say away. any. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's it's a hybrid uh, tightrope. It's a uh, screw fibula screw tibia with a uh, tightrope in between. It's a newer device made by companies that we're not allowed to talk about, uh, but it's delightful. The thing is so fast to yeah. go in. Yeah. It Completely is awesome. Different. Can you give a little more explanation of it, like sort of what happens? It's a screw when you that, that deploys. So you basically put this screw across, and then they separate, and in between is a tightrope and you can tension it perfectly, it, and it takes, what, five minutes? Yeah. I so mean, it's literally putting a screw in and backing it off, and it just, super quick, and so it you, goes into place. You're putting a screw through the fibula into the tibia? Correct. That, okay, and then the tightrope goes they, from there it out. It deploys, and so it leaves part of the screw in the fibula and part of the screw in the tibia anchors in, and it's got a tightrope that connects to the two of them, and you can tension it perfectly. It's a lot faster than any other... So there's no. Can you button. show me your picture? There's I no, mean, yeah, we, we have, have visuals here. <laughs> yeah, there's the screw in the fibula. There's the screw in the tibia. There's the syndesmotic with the interosseous membrane tear that Salil didn't have on his. In between his. But what I also liked on his picture is that the that device is proximal to the distal tip fib joint, which is very important yes. that it needs to be out of that joint. So yeah, it's scary. <laughs> All right. Uh, Fantastic. Teamwork. And Dr. Sabatini. Yeah, I I chose to not participate in the drawing competition. I know my limitations. I shall reduce that and then um, fix with suture button fixation, a.k.a. tightrope. Got it. And I tried to make it a little harder. So in this image where it's a proximal fibula fracture and the plate is stopping pretty high, what do you do in that case? Are you putting the cortical button on the... 
on the cortex, or are you putting a little like washer or anything? Yeah, um, Colin May is going to show you his picture, and I'm going to I'm going to go with him. All right, next up. Yeah, so I think there are options here in terms of how you do the um, uh, fixation. But in terms of if I had to decide, I would also do a suture button technique um, for fixation of the syndesmosis. I think in terms of the uh, options for how do you um, put in the suture button, um, you know, there have been some suggestion that having it through uh, a plate-type construct leads to fewer complications, and therefore that's um, probably an important aspect of uh, doing a suture button type technique. Uh, so you could either extend that plate down further, so you use a longer plate and put mm -hmm. it through the plate, or uh, add a secondary uh, small plate that you put the suture button through. Great. Okay, so no takers on syndesmotic screws currently in May of 2021. What about in the audience? Any uh, who agrees with, let's start on the left side of the table with Dr. Sabatini and May, who's doing a, a tightrope? All right, we've got about 50% of the yeah, panelists true. and audience. And who's uh, using this unnamed magical device with a well, screw we just, that we tensions? Do, we, do, we do want to mention that you guys said tightrope, which is the actual name of the device. I, I, I think as long we, as we're, we're, people know what we're talking about. Yeah. So okay. we're using the uh, Synthes Depew uh, Fibulock, and it's, uh, it, it does have that tightrope type construct in terms of having the tether in between. It's just how you anchor down is through screw fixation of both bones. Great. So I think just to be clear, it's dynamic fixation still as opposed to static, which Absolutely. is exactly a key That's distinction. A point. Key point. So no one's doing static fixation. Anyone in the audience like uh, screws for this? So we still use no takers. Pretty, Our, uh, we still use pretty uh, screws pretty regularly. Um, That's why we have an elder member of, with the moderators. Right. That's right. <laughs> it's just tightrope. Uh, uh, I think a lot of it comes out of our residence education through Grady and our Grady team, uh, which uses them in adults. And looking at the cost difference, it's pretty astounding. I mean, I don't remember what the cost of a single cortical screw is, but it's not a lot. But a, but a tightrope device is about $1,600. So it's not really apples to apples from a cost standpoint. So we do take that into account. Um, I've used both. I haven't had any uh, major issues. I've certainly had some screws break, but not with any issues that we run into. So Great. Yeah, very valuable consideration. I, I would just, can I throw something out Please. there? Right. So I would just say that, um, so as somebody who previously did use syndesmotic screws and literally only recently started using suture button fixation, I think that, I mean, there's lots of data to support why we would do that. To, to Dr. Fletcher's point, I would just say agree, because I'm very cost conscious, particularly since much of my work is in other countries. But um, I would just say that when you look at the rate of needing to go back and surgically remove those syndesmotic screws, that actually becomes a bigger cost. So there is a study, and I forget who published it, but on the adult side that did show that actually the syndesmotic screw has a higher cost than the, than the suture button fixation because so many of them do need uh, surgical removal. So you have to really make sure you're looking at that full spectrum of care. That's the only thing. So just because I was in your camp for, for a long time, but... I would just offer that up as something to think about. A good point. Great point. So, and uh, also great segue. So, Dr. May's abstract from Boston Children's is on the management of syndesmotic injuries, and the authors looked at trends in syndesmotic treatment, and they found that at Boston Children's from 2008, when the, the um, tightropes were introduced, to 2019, the use went from 0%, in other words, all screws initially, as you'd expect, up to 70%. And when they surveyed surgeons nationally, very similarly, they found that 70% preferred dynamic fixation. Um, and second surgeries were the primary reason, uh, because after screws, 84% of patients 
were having a second surgery, and after the dynamic fixation, 34% were having a, a second surgery. Um, Dr. May, any, what, what were your main takeaways from this study? Yeah, I think, you know, we were curious just because there's such a lack of evidence in young people, but such good evidence in adults. So there are multiple level one studies in adults. There's meta-analyses of seven or eight, six or seven randomized controlled trials in adults. Um, and the body of evidence really is pointing towards dynamic fixation being better for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, the rate of malreduction is less. The rate of um, instability at uh, late follow-up is less. The complication rate is less. Uh, you know, subjective uh, functional or subjective symptoms are better, functional outcomes are better. So there's a real, I think, movement towards dynamic fixation in the adult patient, and we just don't have any of that evidence in kids. And so I think our motivation was, you know, what are people doing? Are we actually doing what they do in adults? Because that's, you know, what we know in terms of evidence um, and what we train doing, or um, are we still kind of you know, doing what we were doing eight years ago uh, before suture buttons really became popular. So I think that was the motivation for looking at this and really has shown that, um, you know, uh, there's been a, real, a trend towards utilization of suture button for the reasons you outline, both because of the data in adults and also because of this issue related to harder removal, which is so much greater in uh, the screw fixation group. Perfect uh, conclusion. Um, would anyone, is anyone going to consider changing their practices based on what we've discussed today? Everyone's happy. <laughs> I'm going to do more formal internal rotation stress in my superconnellers, I think. Great. Awesome. Well, um, I want to thank our audience members and uh, also our listeners who are going to catch this uh, and download it maybe tomorrow or the next day. Um, appreciate everyone's support of the podcast. Um, of course, thanks to um, our moderating team up here, Josh, Carter, Nick, and myself. And I do want to thank our hosts, or sorry, our uh, abstract authors. Um, again, we have Colleen Sabatini, Dr. Colin May, uh, we have John Schenecker, and we have Salil Upasani. Um, so uh, looking forward to spending the rest of the week with you guys. And um, uh, thanks for uh, joining us today. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. Fantastic. Thank you guys for joining.